This is DevOps and Agile Way Podcast. Hello everyone. This is the second episode of my podcast and today I'm really, really happy because we have Ali with us. Lee is a great person. You know, if you if you follow uh, serverless stuff and cloud stuff on LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever, you should know Lee already. If not, shame on you. Lee, you are the architect, serverless developer, serverless advocate, right? And you are very active. You do a lot of things on YouTube, on, on LinkedIn. You, you talk on different events. How it started for you? Because uh, every journey of people like you, right, who start being on the second side of this mirror, right, starting starting sharing the the knowledge is is different. So how it came that that you are here today? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, thank you for the invite. It's it's great to be here uh, talking to you today. Um, so yeah, my name is Lee Gilmore. Um, I work as a global enterprise serverless architect, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, shortened to Giza to, to a lot of people. And I currently work for City Electrical Factors in the UK and City Electric Supply in the US. Um, so we have essentially many, many stores, branches, you could call them, uh, globally mm-hmm. in North America, the UK, Australia, where we sell things like uh, sockets and wires and everything electricians would essentially mm-hmm. need in, in their everyday day life. Outside of that, I'm obviously an AWS community builder. I've uh, been doing that for quite a while now, write a lot of articles, blogs. Um, most of my articles I write uh, a code repo with it. Um, mm-hmm. That allows people to understand the article itself and then deep dive into the code and you know just allow them to pull it down and, and kind of debug and, and play with it. But I've been doing this roughly 25 years. I've been in the mm-hmm. industry. Um, Same here. So 50 years. So. <laughs> well, I, yeah. We um, are old. <laughs> Uh, started back in the day racking servers, working in government, um, worked with .NET and Java and, you know, many, many proprietary products. And I think it was back in um, 2014, I was working for a company and very much based in Node.js. Um, everything was running on EC2 at the time mm. and was given the opportunity to take this monolith which was written over five years and had the remit of you know let's re-architect this fully serverless which was fantastic Mm. and look to internationalize this fully Um, so it started off i think was the end of 2014 uh, where lambda first came out i think it was like Mm -hmm. november or december 2014 started using it for really small parts of the application so you know generating files and reports and and things like that. And we thought, wow, this is amazing. A couple of years on, and yeah, I was given this this opportunity to rewrite this um, monolith that we had millions of customers using it, millions of employees, thousands of companies using it. It was a SaaS product. Mm-hmm. And to move that fully to the cloud, AWS, serverless, fully internationalized, so you could you know, have this deployed out to many, many different regions, which was fantastic. And that was it, did that. It was very successful after 12 months. And mm-hmm. I think I got the bug from there, to be honest. Um, <laughs> oh, so, yeah. <laughs> that, 
that's me. Yeah, that's great. And uh, really, thank you, thank you very much for joining me today because uh, this is uh, really, really uh, important for me, and I really appreciate that. Right. So you mentioned very interesting thing that switching or rearchitecting, right, from the monolith to serverless. This is quite tricky because uh, with uh, with something in between, like microservice, we can uh, say, okay, we will take this monolith and put it into the container. It is not the smartest way to do things, right? We know that, but at least this is possible. With serverless, it's uh, <laughs> quite risky, I would I would say, right? So, uh, how did you start the, this approach? Because uh, you know, when when Lambda came out, right, it was uh, generally speaking unknown how to deal with this. So, so you were in kind of terra incognita, right? So, uh, definitely out of comfort zone because in EC2 it was relatively easy. So, so what was your approach? How you how you started this? You mentioned that you. You do it. You did it gradually with small services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, what was the decision process and how 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 it came to to life? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So we we did start using Lambda for small services that that kind of worked alongside the monolith at the time. It was like I say, Node.js and and deployed mm-hmm. to to EC2, and then. Over a period of time, we realized that it needed fully architected from the ground up. And the reason for that, it was very much based in the UK, the code base. So if you think of an employee, for example, you might have first name, surname, and national insurance number. Mm-hmm. But to deploy this globally to, say, North America, national insurance number doesn't exist. You'd have a social security number. And that would have its own regexes and patterns. And this was full stack. This was from the data model in the database all the way to the front-end client. So this was essentially build, you know, net new and do a data migration. There was no way to slowly strangle. Obviously, any book you would read would say, you know, do a strangler pattern and slowly move parts across. We just couldn't do it because this remit of full internationalization through the full stack we just couldn't have done it. It would have just been too too slow. And that's where, obviously, I'm very interested in enterprise serverless and, and clean mm. code. And, and that's where these things uh, kind of came into to play. So by that point, as, as we'd played with Lambda and step functions that came out and then AppSync. Um, so we went down the route of using AppSync and then looking at the Lambdas and actually writing them in the right way um, with clean code. So mm. we didn't go full clean code for anyone that, that, that knows um, how, how clean code and hexagonal architectures work. But we did look at stripping out the business logic into its own kind of layer and then mm. looking at more of the kind of the kind of repository pattern for things like the database and persistence. So persistence ignorance, the, the actual code itself, the, the Lambda code, the business logic, it wasn't aware of actually where it was persistent to in the way that we wrote it. It also wasn't aware of where the inputs were coming from. Um, mm. So it wasn't aware that it was AppSync, for example. And, you know, as long as it confined to, to the interfaces and the, the DDOs, it just worked, essentially. And and, and that worked very well. Um, an example of why that worked well, halfway through the project, um, we were very focused on using DynamoDB in the microservices. And that was fantastic, brilliant scale, cost-effective, ephemeral environments, fully serverless. 
But as we did that, obviously access patterns were something we really had to think about. Yeah. We worked closely with the DynamoDB team, which was fantastic, the service team. But then halfway through the project, we also acquired an HR product that now had to be fully integrated. That meant the access patterns went fully out the window. You know, all of a sudden we need pagination, kind of aggregation, projection, filtering all at the same time on any field. And then Dynamo wasn't obviously a, a, a great fit. We could have looked at complexities around event sourcing and CQRS and pushing certain read stores to maybe Elasticsearch at the time, like OpenSearch mm. now. But the complexities were just too big. So that's where that kind of hexagonal architecture worked really well. The fact that we'd split out the core logic from the actual persistence uh, mechanisms. Mm. So we were able to move very, very quickly, you know, change that persistence from DynamoDB and most of the microservices to what happened to be DocumentDB, um, so Mongo-based, that worked very mm -hmm. well. Um, but also on the, the kind of other side of that, we also had the remit that desktop applications now had to use REST um, to, to connect with. So again, that worked absolutely fine. We had the front-end applications using GraphQL. Mm -hmm. But when we needed the same business logic for desktop applications, we just created new adapters for API Gateway. So that's where not going fully hexagonal architecture with um, value objects and aggregates and what what have you, just splitting things out in the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is the approach I take from a serverless perspective as well. That actually yeah. really helped us on that journey, you know, without it being a catastrophic uh, issue, you know. Mm -hmm. Some kind of pl plugable architecture, right? Exactly. <laughs> this exactly. is uh, what uh, what we can have with uh, hexagonal approach and uh, this kind of idea. Uh, before we go to deeper into technicalities of um, enterprise um, serverless, very often we can hear that uh, serverless is fine for small things, right? So th th this is like a argument we can we can hear multiple times, especially from those people who don't really understand what serverless is. My question is, because on the enterprise level, things are happening a little bit differently, right? There is uh, definitely definitely different speed of adapting, different approach to adapting those things, right? So from your experience, what, what will be your uh, advice, like one advice for the team of the enterprise architects, right, who... who wish to look on on this approach, wish, wish to look on serverless and adapt serverless in their um, environments? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, so the one thing I have written over numerous years now is uh, an approach called serverless architecture layers. And this um, encompasses many things, it, it, you know, confines to things like team topologies. Um, it's, you know, it very much based on the work of Eric Evans, it is layered architecture, but from a conceptual point of view, it doesn't mean it's um, SOA or anything like that. But what it does do is it has particular guardrails around as you're actually starting to build out in an enterprise with serverless, some key things you should think about. And the reason for that is serverless is very quick to get started. Um, and that's what's great about serverless, things like MVP, getting things straight out for, to actually test those features with customers and iterate on it. That, that's great. Yeah, that's but true. 
with that, a lot of people might spin up a solid stack. So um, S3 for a React app, API Gateway, Lambda, and DynamoDB. Very easy to do, but that doesn't mean it's productionized. And mm. a lot of teams don't think about you know things like DR and scalability and having DLQs, for example, and the report and our compliance around you yeah. know the storing of data. And so yeah, I think it's very easy to get started. And one thing I have seen, um, this this was I think first coined by ThoughtWorks, which is the Lambda Pinball architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen that um, working with a few organizations in the past where if you have many teams in an enterprise that all start very quickly going down that serverless route, if you don't have the governance around it, there's a lot of high cognitive load with the teams, mm-hmm. um, a lot of duplication. So you might find that one team starts using EventBridge and then another team's actually at the same time looking at MSK and another team's looking at another pattern. And what quickly happens is one team says, okay, I need to listen to events from your domain and it's okay, right? You now need to learn Kafka. Um, mm. Okay, great, that, that's not really gonna work and it, it's high cognitive load. So so that's another key part of serverless architecture layers, which is having that ESB in there. And it, it's highly opinionated around EventBridge. Um, and th- there are patterns around that. The, um, the single bus multi-account pattern is typically what I go for, but Again, it's that governance of that enterprise level where, you know, what does a good event look like? Does it, does it have kind of data and meta properties on it? Are we using event carried state transfers so of fat events essentially with a lot of um, data on them? And that makes life a lot easier as you start growing an enterprise, having that governance up front because mm. you know how teams are going to communicate bus to bus. You know what the events look like and that kind of feeds into the platform engineering aspect, which is another key part of architecture layers, which is developer experience. How do you find the events? Um, you know, for some of the domains that you've got, their APIs, how do you know what a good REST interface looks like? And how do you even find those APIs? So this all kind of fits in at, at that kind of level. So I think having that governance up front reduces the risk of this Lambda pinball architecture and I think the other key aspect of that is DDD, which, which obviously mm. encodes part of, but looking at bounded contexts and, and looking at domains having private APIs that are, you know, their domain services that are only accessible through what I call channels and an experience layer. So an example could be, uh, say, raising an order. I would typically have an order domain service or order management, which is private to the AWS network and that's only accessible through channels. So if I want to raise an order via an Alexa app or via a web app, mobile, they are very thin backend for front ends that access essentially the same domain logic. So again, having that governance prevents people duplicating uh, the same logic and the same you know, um, capabilities across many, many different services. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just thinking that kind of governance and patterns at that wider kind of enterprise level. Yeah, that, that that's great. Thank you for 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 this uh, answer. It was really deep and very very important. And I catched this. You mentioned team topologies, right? And uh, from from some time I already say that uh, IT become people business with all of this more modern modernish approaches, microservices, serverless, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, we split the 
application more and more. We put more and more communication lines, doesn't matter what it is, but communication lines between those microservices. And we need to ensure that those teams who are in charge of those microservices also communicate, right? That's convey law principle. And it's quite, uh, quite important. And I believe it's not enough of mentioning that, right? Because um, I saw many failures because of that. Right. So, so, so thank you for mentioning that. That that is a very important point. And coming back to the uh, serverless enterprise approach, how do you see from, let's say, architect perspective? Do the models we have for model modeling the architecture are still valid for for serverless? Because in my opinion, we need to switch completely, right? Because uh, what we had as a for example, component diagram right now it's serverless is a little bit different, right? So, do you see any 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 need to adapt maybe those those uh, approaches, especially in terms of enterprise, because there you know the architecture is a little bit bigger than two lambdas and one API, yeah, right? Definitely. And this is where I do use the C4 model quite a bit. Um, so that C4 model allows people to conceptually view other systems and other domains, and especially within that serverless architecture layer's perspective, they can understand, okay, mm. there's the order domain and here's the, the product domain and uh, the sale domain, what have you. So they can see at that very high level. Um, one of the kind of key aspects for me is everything that happens behind that private API gateway, that you know versioned API gateway that people can find, whatever happens behind there really mm. doesn't matter within that domain too much. It's encapsulated. So there's there's essentially two ways to communicate with a domain service, which is um, through that API synchronously or asynchronously using events, and that's the only way. Um, but it does allow you at that top level with C4 to, to look at the, the full landscape, and that's going to be buy versus build as well. There's going to be potentially um, off-the-shelf products in there, which, which again should confine to those same standards of the only way to interact with them is through APIs and events. So there's obviously going back to EventBridge, it's very easy to use API destinations where off the back of an, uh, an event happening to actually then automatically call out and hit a, a third-party service, you know, and it's no different if that third-party service wants to raise an event, they can use an event gateway pattern. So they can hit an API, which then essentially puts that event directly on EventBridge. So it, again, architecture layers, thinks about this holistically. Um, but, but going back to the, the complexities, I do think that is a problem as you start to delve into that lower level um, within that domain and that C4 model as, you, as you, you kind of delve down to that AWS architecture diagram. Serverless is very complex and I think it's very complex to view and I think that's something we haven't solved yet. You know, even a, a medium-sized service that might have storage-first patterns and you know, uh, many, many lambdas, you might have DynamoDB streams or change streams of DocumentDB and a lambda off the back of that, that, you know, it's, it, it is, you know, for somebody that hasn't actually built it and somebody coming into a new team and looking at that um, architecture diagram, it is very complex to understand what's going on. Yeah, that, that's true. And there is also another layer of complexity. I don't know if you agree with me, especially if we talk about enterprise. And uh, honestly, it doesn't matter if this is synchronous or asynchronous communication. With asynchronous, uh, it's, of course, a little bit better. But I think that there is an impact of our beloved 
cold start, right? Because uh, we have chain of things which are happening in in application. It's not like a simple lambda which answering the black cat or or white dog. And uh, I believe this proper approach to architecture, which you already mentioned, this hexagonal ap- uh, architecture, mm-hmm. clean code has a very significant impact on the behavior and the performance of the application because I believe that serverless is, mm, I would say, quite sensitive to that, right? Because uh, for with EC2 instance, it doesn't matter if this is smart approach or not, you can just make instance bigger. And I heard this many times from the support. I just create bigger instance. With serverless, adding more memory or whatever is not the solution very often. It, it helps. Very often it helps, but it's not the solution here. So how will you, mm, let's say, encourage people to to look on this aspect, especially of the architect- uh, architecture of, of serverless and approach to coding itself with this proper understanding of what cold start is? Because, uh, well, not many people even understand that there are multiple types of cold start, right? Yeah, and, and like you say, I think this is where clean code it is a big win actually taking the time to to do it properly so again going back to to teams first starting out um a lot of the time what they would do is just have a handler that has everything in it so it'll have the domain logic and it'll have the persistence it'll have the you know the sdk calls and what have you going out to maybe dynamo db i think just thinking up front of splitting that out a little bit you know so you've got like i say primary adapters would be your inputs your that's the technology aspect. So it could be a Lambda handler, or in our case, if we need to move to containers because of cold starts, that could be an Express controller or Next.js or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that upfront thought about evolutionary architecture and you know being good to your future self and building things in the right way, because it, it is very, very easy to not do that and throw everything in the kitchen sink into the Lambda but that will, based on what I said earlier, um, the problems I've had in the past with swapping out from Dynamo to a different data store, same with API Gateway, mm-hmm. these things do happen, and especially in an enterprise. But also, this is another buzzword which is very popular still. It's still buzzword. It's Agile, right? And we can apply Agile to architecture as well, right? An architect should do what is needed with some idea in mind, how it will behave, how it will be upgraded, in the future, but still, you don't need to implement everything on the on the on the beginning on the day zero, right? And this is also the power of serverless because uh, this is uh, easily scalable, not only in terms of performance but also in terms of uh, features. Yeah, and this is where I encourage teams to inspect and adapt. So, you know, get the MVP version out, and and then you know, see how it performs, you know, ask the customer, how, how is this feature performing? There's no point in spending two or three months building a feature that the customer doesn't want. So, so yeah, very much inspect and adapt, but also having one eye on that North Star architecture of where you want to get to. And it's obviously a sliding scale as well, just because you want to get something out quite quickly and iterate on that. It doesn't mean that you don't think about authentication or authorization or, the DR capabilities, because again, that is something that I see quite a lot where teams just want to get something out quite quickly and iterate on it without thinking of the security aspects. And so I think there's a there's a line in there somewhere um, that I think teams have to find themselves. You know, this leads me to the topic which in the in this 
period of time in 2023 is uh, not possible to not touch, right? We all know this case of Amazon Prime and uh, their proof that serverless is dead and microservices are dead and cloud is dead at all, right? So we need to go back to the, I don't know, stones or, and, and paper. So what happened there is exactly what we uh, talked about, right? This adaptation, invest in kind of MVP, which becomes like a live product, right? But with the scale, they realize that it doesn't work properly. So they just did the change. They adapt. They inspected the the current state. They knew where the problem is, and they act properly on it, right? So it's not uh, something like bad architecture on the beginning. It's not something like, yeah, serverless is dead, right? Because this is one one service only and kind of supportive service for the main functionality of the Prime, right? <laughs> what can be your answer from the exactly enterprise perspective, right? Uh, where we implement the serverless approach and then we come back from... Come back, it's it's bad to defini- saying, but we move forward back to, <laughs> to monolith, right? Is this something, you know, uh, bad? I, I don't think it is. I think there was, there was obviously a lot of, of noise about this in the industry, but if you write your code in the right way, which I, I presume the team did, I, I don't think reading the articles that it said specifically that they had, uh, you know, onion architectures or hexagonal architectures, but I think the... The piece in the article I seen was we could reuse most of the code that we already had to then move to containers. So you could probably imply that you know that there was that level of um, clean code in, in there, which you would expect with Amazon anyway, I guess. But um, yeah, I think everything around you changes. I think change is the only one thing that's constant, and that's in in your industry. It's with your customers. It's you know your business is going to change. So. Again, I think that's the key thing for me at that kind of enterprise level is just building things in the right way to allow for evolutionary architectures. That That's one of the key things I try and drive home mm-hmm. with the, the teams um, I work with. Yeah, and, and this is the, the principle you, you, you mentioned, right? They reuse a lot of code. And again, leads me to another argument from the camp of anti-serverless and anti-cloud people, right? This is the, the famous vendor lock. This case here, in my opinion, proves that, uh, yes, vendor lock may be an issue, but it is not that, you know, complex and problematic issue, in fact, right? Because, yes, for the serverless in the specific vendor, like AWS, Azure, doesn't matter, you need to write the function, at least the handler of the function, in the specific way. That 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 is obvious. But this is a few lines of code. In fact, what should be our like a cloud native guy's answer to to this uh, charge that vendor lock is bad, especially from the enterprise perspective, right? Because because this is uh, the argument which we heard more with the size of the of the company. And with that question, we stop this episode, and we will answer this question. Oh well, Lee will answer this question in the next episode. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of DevOps in Agile Way podcast with your host, Pabeu Pivosh. Subscribe, comment, and do not forget to check our next episodes. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Stay curious. <laughs>